Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. One of the most significant roles of the dominant hemisphere of our brain, in most people's cases, that would be the right hemisphere, is to represent lived experience in terms of narrative sequential thought. In other words, to interpret what's happening around us and turn it into a story with ideas and labels that help us have a sense of a grasp on the world around us. So we like to figure out what each experience, especially emotionally resonant experience in life means. After we go through a difficult interpersonal event with a friend or a relationship or a family member, we sit and we turn it into a story in our heads. And we try to parse out what went wrong. Of course, we do the same after disturbing events in the world, whether personal, such as problems in work or with friendships or problems that are uh, far more transpersonal, like uh, the pandemic, national events, local events, and so forth. We try to make sense of experience largely by labeling the experiences and the constituent actors in each event, the people or the core elements of any experience. We like to label people, places, and things with black and white categories. This person is, or that situation is safe or dangerous, useful or useless, uh, and so forth. And there's clear survival advantages accrue from the brain's being able, the left hemisphere, the dominant hemisphere's ability to translate really complex experiences into good or bad uh, ideas. We can keep a vast array of info in our mind if we can essentially reduce lived experience to simple categories. For the vast bulk of human history, there were no cell phones or books that we could carry around that stored all of human knowledge in them. We had to keep everything in mind. So we had to know which bushes that seemed to offer berries, but actually might have a hornet's nest or a snake. We had to remember very quickly, well, that bush in the past, I got bitten or I got stung. That's a dangerous bush. Or that area is where uh, predatory animals are. So the ability to translate people, places, and events into very simple learnings Uh, serves an enormous survival advantage. It helps us carry around in our mind 
a vast store of important knowledge. Likewise, the ability to reduce all of our experience into a very simple cause and effect story helped us learn important lessons as well. For a very, very long time, especially during periods where there wasn't a storehouse of human knowledge, where we had to keep everything in mind because we hadn't um, created books or internet. We had to basically know everything that was important for our survival. Being able to reduce the lived into very simple categories of avoid that person or trust that other person was helpful. Life itself is a bombardment of stimuli and emotions and feelings and perceptions. And if we weren't capable of turning our experience into a very simple summary, uh, we would be overwhelmed constantly. As Freud noted, intellectualization, living in our cognitive ideations is a defense mechanism, a way to suppress the emotional stress. We remove awareness of our body and our feelings and a lot of the external sensory experience and just try to translate the gist of any event into a very simple idea. So after we go through a breakup, loss of a job, if we sat and felt all of the emotions, it might feel overwhelming. We might feel also overwhelmed with the fear that would be attendant of losing work or losing a relationship. And so we try to instead, in thought, try to figure out what went wrong. As the great neuropsychologist Ian McGilchrist, who wrote one of the most important books of our time on the bilateral brain noted, language uh, enables the dominant hemisphere of the brain, he said, to represent a conceptual version of the world, which is distinct from experience. And it shields us from the immediate environment with all of the impressions and feelings and demands and allows us to abstract everything into something that feels very manageable. It gives us a sense of a control. If we can push aside all of our feelings and emotions after a painful event and just replay the images and try to carve out a story that makes sense of it. Individuals who experience significant emotional abandonments in childhood tend to over-rely subcortical blocking, which means training the thalamus of our brain to filter out all of our emotions so that we simply try to turn every important event into an idea rather than a feeling. For instance, people who have early childhood abandonments later on in life when they try to uh, decide whether to get married, rather than touching base with any emotional impression, they'll try to figure out what makes most logical sense. And it can be very disconcerting to hear. Now, there's a huge, though, price to pay. Whereas 
originally the evolutionary advantage of being able to figure out or try to make sense of experience by churning it over and over and over uh, until we come up with a very simple lesson like don't trust that person again or don't date redheads or don't uh don't loan money to canadians i don't know i'm making things up but you know the idea that if we could uh simply turn painful experiences into an idea that we could carry around during the vast bulk of our species evolutionary development made sense but over time now the value has increasingly been um overwhelmed by the pathologies associated with being disconnected from the felt experience or the felt sense of life the buddha noted that blocking out feelings trying to turn emotionally resonant events into an idea or a simple learning actually is the root of so much suffering in life for example he said that sankara dukkha spinning out and ruminating constantly trying to figure out what things mean as a way to defend and protect ourselves from bad events happening again just trains the mind to keep spinning out and ourselves we become prone to what um uh papancha he called the repetition of intrusive thoughts rather than adding clarity the inability to simply sit and feel the underpinning or the emotional response after difficult experience trying to figure out what interpret negative events simply creates overly busy ruminating mental states likewise with ditti upadana another teaching of the buddha clinging to our ideas and interpretations rather than being with non-verbal feeling states creates cognitive distortions that fail to protect us the buddha noted that our interpretations often lead to increasingly uh self-survival first um rather than reaching out and connecting for, for help from others the more we tend to get lost in thought and try to figure out the more we isolate don't trust the more we don't reach out for support and we can see this because um the more we block out the felt sense the felt sense the non-verb largely non-verbal embodied state that lies beneath every experience is the way that the right hemisphere the midbrain and the brain stem communicate their vital concerns to us and those are the regions especially the right brain that take care and pay attention to our need for attachment and safety and our need to connect with nature and experience awe the dominant thought-based left hemisphere is far more about accumulating goods material resources and constantly moving forward 
it's not about so much be feeling emotions and using those emotions to connect with others. So the more we tend to overthink and not connect, the more our left hemisphere pushes us towards these narrow uh, achievement concerns, like how can I amass more money or more goods or more resources? How can I, uh, how can I make sure that I just avoid unpleasant emotions rather than the right brain concerns of how do I secure positive emotional bonds with others. Those needs for attachment are always communicated through feelings, not through as much ideas. So when people trust their thinking too much, they tend to wind up very much pursuing careers or financial goals and undervalue the need for interpersonal bonds or for rich resonant experiences in life. But there's many other drawbacks associated with overly trying to make sense rather than feel sense uh, of experiences. For instance, there's what's called mood congruence and another uh, psychological theory called categorical conception. These are uh, concerns that for those of us with an academic background in psychology or become aware of, essentially uh, whatever current emotional state we're in, if we're unaware of it, will skew what we pay attention to and how we interpret experience. So if we're sad, we think sad thoughts and only think of sad outcomes. Uh, if we don't become aware of our feelings, unconsciously those feelings actually dictate and skew how we interpret experience and lead to very lopsided and inaccurate depictions of the world around us. Furthermore, all events in life are what's called, the Buddha called them conditioned. In science, we call it overdetermined, which means almost all events in our life are caused by multiple causes, are the result of multiple causes, none of which alone would be sufficient to account for the outcome. So let me give you an example. Um, plants need more than a seed to grow. A seed isn't the single cause of a plant. For a plant to grow, it needs not just a seed, it needs soil and prop, soil with proper nutrients like potassium, and it needs water, and it needs sunlight, and it needs enough space where that sunlight will be turned by photosynthesis into growth. So uh, the more we tend to get lost in self-oriented thought, the more we lose track very often of all of the uh, various conditions that bring about events. For example, after people go through relational breakups, when they try to figure out what went wrong, they generally descend into a spiral of blame and shame. It was my fault that it didn't work out. No, it was their fault. They were, 
they were they were not never available no it was my fault i was needing too much i was too clingy or vice versa we don't see the more we try to rush and make sense of experience um the fact that most of painful events have multiple causes that take many many months years to unpack and can never be figured out very quickly for instance i remember after one particularly painful uh, relationship that ended some 25 years ago uh, i kept on trying to figure out what went wrong and my mind kept on blaming either myself or this um partner this woman that uh uh whose uh whose needs and mine were became un incompatible and it wasn't until many years later that after i put aside the rush to figuring it out that clarity came through and i ran into this person we had a wonderful time walking around but as we connected years later i realized with great clarity that we both had completely different attachment needs completely different backgrounds and that no relationship could possibly have worked with us but there would be no way i could have realized that in the immediate aftermath when the hurt just led me to this extreme feelings of somebody had to be to blame um and probably most importantly trying to figure out or make sense too quickly of lived experience doesn't help us in any way really often lead to any change alcoholics can figure out relatively quickly that they can't we i'm an alcoholic i've been in recovery for 27 years i knew for a long time that i couldn't drink safely yet i still drank the realization the simple insight or idea that drinking isn't good for me didn't lead to any change shopaholics know that binge shop binge shopping or binge eaters know that their compulsive behaviors are causing a great deal of duress in their life and unhappiness yet very often they rely on simply that idea and they keep falling back into the behavioral patterns as a famous uh, canadian psychologist leslie greenberg noted we don't act in accordance with how we think we act in accordance with how we feel and so it's far more important to be aware of the feelings that lead to behaviors rather than try to figure out life and rely on our thinking as the constituent or the core motivator of change. Actually, I have a quote from Leslie Greenberg from his uh, wonderful book on emotion-focused therapies. He said, let me read this, uh, emotions are crucial in motivating behavior people do what they feel like doing rather than what reason or logic dictates 
Let me read that again. People do what they feel like doing rather than what reason or logic dictates. To achieve behavioral change, people need to change the emotions that motivate their behavior. And he also adds, emotion influences thought as well. When people feel angry, they think angry thoughts, as we talked about, mood congruence. When people are sad, they recall sad memories. To help people change what they think and how they act, therapists must help them change what they feel. So the basic idea is if we really want to come away with any meaningful insight from life, it's not about, one, figuring it out too quickly what things mean or turning them into simplistic ideas. We need to become aware of the feelings that very often led to the unhappy results and find other feelings and emotions that will lead to new results. Um, the Buddha, in a very, very important teaching, the Paticca Samuppada, talks about how early emotional experiences, which he called Nama Rupa, create and condition our feelings. And our feelings create our behavioral impulses and cravings, tana, and those turn into thought. But if we simply pay attention to the thinking, the same feelings will be there that will lead to the same results. And so for the Buddha, especially as taught in the Abhidhamma, the way out is to pay attention to the feelings that underpin the behaviors and situations that cause us suffering and to find a way to locate new feelings and emotions that will lead to new results. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, today, just today, uh, this is a very run-of-the-mill, uh, simple, kind of mundane experience. But uh, I had ordered a used pair of pants on eBay. That's how we Buddhist teachers on limit budget roll. And, um, but they were pretty expensive even when used. And uh, they were pants I used for yoga and uh, very comfortable. <laughs> Unfortunately, they never arrived. Uh, even though the shipper said that they were sent, they never arrived. Somebody else must have picked it up and signed for it and went off with it. So when I uh, let eBay know, they said, sorry, the case is closed. You can't get your money back. And I felt this rush of um, in my body that was pretty almost disproportionate to the actual event. I mean, it was an for me, expensive pair of pants, but uh, I still felt this unfairness and this sense of powerlessness rise up. And I felt my the energy in my, my stomach got very, very tight. I felt my heart racing. I felt this sense that go went all the way back to childhood of when my dad would 
due to his very uh, impulsive nature, change his mind about things and take away things that he had given me as a present or something like that. And I felt this just great sense of being taken advantage of. And it just made me want to sit there and not, you know, and just feel sorry for myself. And I realized that that was the predominant feeling beneath the experience. And that feeling was simply going to lead to me just feeling resentful, but absolutely knew, doing nothing about it. And so I waited until that feeling started to subside. And then I found a different feeling that was just as old, although sometimes not as not as demonstrative or apparent. And that other feeling was anger. And this is not right. And I'm not going to let it just happen. I'm not going to just let this big corporation eBay decide that, you know, I can buy something and not get it. So I started using that anger and I, that, uh, that this is not, not going to sit. And I, I had that, that was a feeling that went all the way back to childhood when my dad's behavior became too fickle. I would sometimes just fight back for myself. It took a lot, but that, that resilience was in there too. And I nourished that feeling of, no, I'm not going to just sit there. And, you know, after a million uh, trying to finally reach someone, I managed to reach a customer service person and I, let them know what happened and they finally did something about it. But if I had just felt the primary feeling, I wouldn't have done anything. I would have just given up and just, just felt this sense of resignation that life's unfair. I needed to connect with a different feeling and that feeling led to different behaviors and to a different result. Um, sometimes during the early pandemic, when uh, everything went online, and I felt this great sense of uh, missing seeing people in person, and due to the social distancing, and that feeling of just sadness and melancholy at times, uh, all it did was it just it just created this sense of disappointment and, and sadness that was pervasive. And then I had to connect with a different feeling that was also there, but kind of overwhelmed by the sadness and connect with this really deep right brain desire to connect, that this urge to connect with others. And so I started reaching out to people that I knew would be willing to sit outside. And we started connecting and sitting outdoors and uh, meeting. And that was very, very uh, beneficial. So the key is that lasting change depends on access to the nonverbal but not just the primary nonverbal experience, to find the adaptive, often buried, but still somewhere present feeling that's resilient in all of us, that has allowed us to survive despite whatever 
emotional challenges and attachment wounds and traumas we've experienced the fact that we're all here at dharma punks tonight means that there are feelings associated with resilience and the key is not so much to try to figure out invariably what went wrong after negative experiences in life but to touch into the 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 resilient feeling that leads to the adaptive uh connective the the growth oriented choice the way we do this is we unplug from our smartphones at times, our, our social media, our chores, and we put aside the storytelling of, of painful events. And we simply hold an image in our mind and we ask, how do I feel about that? Or if we're just, if it's not a specific event, we might ask, how do I feel about my life? How do I feel like what's happening? I feel about what's happening now. We don't go into any thoughts. We simply find the prevailing feeling, the both the feeling outside of thoughts, the emotion and the embodied somatic state, the tight belly, the tight chest, or the, the numbness, or the feeling of energy, the heart racing, or whatever feeling is present. And then once we discern if that feeling is predominantly fear, we allow it to arise and pass. Fear is almost invariably that tight stomach and I'm overwhelmed, I can't do anything. Once that feeling, as the Buddha said, arises and begins to settle over time, it might take quite a while, we find another feeling if we can't find that other resilient feeling, we might bring to mind a time in life where despite obstacles, we prevailed or stood up for ourselves or uh, connected with others after a disappointing emotional event. We hold this resilient image in mind and then we feel that the growth, you know, um, that uh, indomitable, feeling that wants us to continue despite the melancholy, the sadness, the loneliness, the whatever it is that's predominant. We wait until this new feeling takes shape and we resonate and try to try to fully extend that feeling into a fully embodied state and we ask that feeling what does it want us to do it's kind of hard to explain so i'm actually going to lead us in a practice where we put this uh, idea into actual uh in our meditation uh, we actually try it out so that's tonight's talk it's about trying to not make so much sense of life as to try to become aware of the feelings that underpin uh, negative events being willing to be with them and then find resilient emotions and feelings 
that might lead to different behaviors and different results. So thanks for listening. And we're now going to put it in practice. And while you uh, find a comfortable seated position, if you uh, would like to support my work, uh, my Venmo is uh, Dharma Punks with an XNYC. And there's also a PayPal on dharmapunks.com. So thanks for that. And now let's let's uh, do some practice. So um, just find a really comfortable seated position. And if you feel most comfortable just sitting back in a chair or um, lying on a couch, that's fine. I would encourage you to close your eyes or look down at the ground or disconnect with following the, the visual stimuli around you because this is going to be uh, an internal process. We're not going to be lost in thought, but we're going to be using awareness of feeling states. And so, um, yeah, just close the eyes. And don't try to meditate, just, just try to relax. Yeah, so become aware first of either the most predominant sensation of breathing in your body. For some of us, it'll just be the air entering through the tip of the nose or breathing in through the mouth. For many, a more pleasant or dominant sensation of breathing might be the chest expanding, contracting, or the, the abdomen, the belly, lifting, the energy moving up, and then the release of the exhalation, the energy moving down. Or for some of us, it feels like the I very often feel like my belly is a balloon that's expanding with the in-breath and contracting with the out-breath. And it's useful to find the breath, especially if it's possible in the belly, because this is a useful tool to eventually put aside the overexpression of fear, which tends to be too predominant and a, 
of feeling or emotion or impulse, the more we can keep a soft belly by paying attention to the breathing in the belly, that's a wonderful way to begin to soften anxiety and fear. And just see if you can pay attention to allowing the exhalations to be particularly complete without being cut off. The longer the exhalation, the more we engage the parasympathetic nervous system, which relaxes. So just really complete in-breaths and very long, uncut off exhalations, easily as long, if not longer than our inhalations. If it's difficult to stay with the breath or be too embodied with it, just allow the sounds of your environment to also be present in your awareness. Sounds create an expansiveness to the mind. And so if the body alone is difficult for us, adding awareness of sounds is a good way to create some space from the intensity of somatic life. Don't try to visualize what creates sounds in your environment, just allow them to be present, an ongoing symphony of auditory experience. music without a composer. And just feeling either the energy of the breath moving up and down in the body or the sensations of the breath, the tip of the nose, the mouth or the chest.
It's very often the case that when we disconnect with sight and monitoring the world around us for visual events that very invariably the mind will become stuck in thought, thoughts sometimes about events from earlier in the day, thoughts about the future, speculative thoughts about ourselves. And rather than getting it all frustrated by that, each time we become aware that we're not paying attention to the body, to the actual sensations of sound around us, it's an opportunity to develop a neural circuit that allows us to put aside thought and come back to what's actually really happening right now. Much of our long-term happiness depends upon being able to put aside the thoughts that keep us awake at night, the thoughts that keep us preoccupied and ruminating, and be able to return to our actual lived experience. So what you're doing in your practice, every time you become aware that you're lost in thought and you return back to the breath, to awareness of your body, feelings, you're not just bringing about peace now, but you're actually planting the seeds that will help you a thousand times over in the future when disturbing, ruminating, repetitive thoughts want to grab hold. You'll have a way out. So let's build that muscle. Each time we're lost in thought, just come back.
So at this point, let's put into practice the tools that we mentioned earlier. So what I'd like you to do is bring up in your mind a recent unresolved, perplexing, confusing or disappointing emotional event. An event that doesn't sit well, perhaps that still feels raw. Perhaps it's been something that you've been churning over in your mind or it's so disappointing you simply pushed it away, compartmentalized it. And what I'd like you to do is just hold an image that represents this event. We're not going to turn it into a story. We're not going to think about it. We're just going to hold an emotionally resonant image that represents the most uh, intense or memorable quality of this experience. So it might have been, a, for example, a disappointing encounter with someone, just hold an image of their face or something that represents that encounter. And what I'd like you to do is just ask, how do I feel about this? How do I feel about this? And don't allow words, your attention to go to the words in your mind, nor replaying the event. Pay attention to your belly, your chest, your throat, your shoulders. Note whether your mind becomes jumpy. Note whether your heart starts to race or it feels like there's a hollowness in your chest. Just keep bringing your attention back to what you're actually feeling, the sensations in your body, not words or replaying of the experience. Just what do you feel about this? What do I feel about this? Find the feeling. Sometimes the feeling will be really uncomfortable, really painful, but if you keep maybe the sounds from the outside world or just keep keeping your breath very long, keeping your belly soft, you can be with the tightness in the shoulders, the the, the the discomfort in the throat or the feeling of sadness in the eyes. And we just want to give space for this primary feeling. Maybe it's anger, whatever. We want the primary the, or the first emotion that came up to have space. 
And then over time, while that primary feeling is there and you're giving space for it, over time what we would do, and we're going to be doing an abbreviation of this practice, eventually what we would do is bring to mind an image of a time in your life where despite feeling overwhelmed, confused, uh, disappointed, alone, left behind, not taken care of, You did something that exemplified resilience. You asked for help. You fought back. You changed the behavior. You tried something new. Bring to mind some experience in your life that exemplifies resilience, growth, strength, endurance. Don't overthink it. Just go with any time you felt you persevered. You took a growth choice. You took the risky choice. And just feel with this image if there's any feeling that underpins, any emotional impulse that underpinned that growth choice, that resilience. Maybe it's a slightly different feeling in your chest or belly. Maybe it's a, there's a softening in the muscles of your face or a change in your breathing pattern. Just locate in your body some small felt shift that 
is associated with self-care. And lean into whatever sensation, whatever impulse allowed you to break free of fear or giving up. Touch into the emotion that even after interpersonal disappointments allows you to keep reaching out for new connections, new friendships, new support, or to reach out to people who are associated with kindness. It might not be this time, but if you keep practicing, you'll find a small feeling associated with self-care and resilience. And just ask that feeling, what does it want you to do? How does it want you to adapt? Even if the impulse is scary. What does it want you to do? Sometimes I feel it. in the upper part of my body where the feeling of disappointment or overwhelm is a feeling of energy flooding down to my belly or a spinning out of confusion and thoughts and attention. I'll just find some image associated with a new adaptive behavior that has allowed me to grow in the past. And I'll just find that feeling and let it speak to me. So um, that's an example of connecting with the feeling state that underpins the growth choice in life. So what I'm going to be doing in a moment is ringing the bell, and that's uh, when you can, if you'd like, take your time and 
Just return to awareness of the environment you're situated in and the screen. And then we'll move on to questions.